0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello, my name is Christian Byrne, and today I'm really pleased to be joined by Kaiser Isgren. Kaiser's a Senior Lecturer in Equine Surgery at the University of Liverpool, and she also acts as the head of biosecurity there. So she's a really great person to have us um, uh, a discussion with today about her review article, Improving Clinical Outcomes Via Responsible Antimicrobial Use in Horses. That article is currently uh, available on Early View for EVE. Um, so you can access that there. Um, but uh, just would like to welcome Kaiser. You're welcome. So I think uh, a good sort of starting point before we get into the um, article itself, uh, just for some context, maybe would be for you to just give us a little background um, on yourself and how you became interested in antimicrobial resistance.
1: Uh, Yeah, certainly. So, um, yeah, I suppose uh, some personal reasons that sort of family members that had implant surgery for hip replacement and then got MRSA and which kind of, you know, led to deteriorating health. Um, and then during my training, like during my residency, just seeing um, particularly surgical site infections after colic surgery, you know, you can save a horse's life. And then they develop a really frustrating surgical site infection that just lingers on. Mm-hmm. Um, and causes course there's not mortality, but a lot of morbidity for that horse and owner. So that's kind of how I became Um, interested in this and after I finished my residency there was an opportunity to complete a PhD with the University of Liverpool which was um, funded by the Horse Trust and uh, so yeah I took the opportunity and um, I'm very pleased I did and then that led Mm -hmm. on to my role at Liverpool as um, biosecurity and infection control
0: great i think that that's uh, that's really useful just to get some some background on your um perspective on things um, and we were just talking before we started the recording about um this article and uh, you were asking why i sort of picked this one as an interesting one to talk about and i guess um uh, antimicrobial resistance really is, is something we're all familiar with in in many contexts and particularly our our own work um but uh, it's maybe a topic that uh things move quite quickly and certainly for me just looking through the article there was definitely things that i uh uh, didn't know that are in here or maybe things that i thought i knew about that actually maybe the the um perception on on those topics has changed so um uh i think If you could get us started with some background, um, what might be useful to uh, cover in the first instance is um, a term that you introduced called the highest priority, critically important antimicrobials. Um, What are the agents that we're actually talking about and, and which ones of those are important in the context of equine practice?
1: So yeah, it's got various names. I think the current, like you said, the current terminology with the WHO likes to use is this highest priority, critically important antimicrobials. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a mouthful, HPCIAs, but uh, it does sort of um, introduce the the subject that everyone knows what, what you're talking about. Um, the other term that's sort of bound around is obviously just critically important or last resort or vital antimicrobials, but they all mean the same thing. But um, uh, in the literature, I like to use this terminology: HPCIAS, and they mm-hmm. are referring to third and fourth generation cephalosporins, um, fluoroquinolones, and then things we perhaps don't use so much in equine surgery, but more used in foals, obviously rifampicin, um, and then obviously in colex, polymixin B. There's many others that are available for humans, but they're not really relevant to us as horse vets. So
0: great yeah so um not not an extensive list for us to to need to be familiar with i guess which is which is uh, encouraging um another uh sort of encouraging thing i think at the early part of the paper is you give some information about some of the trends maybe of reduced antimicrobial use um in food producing animals and in horses and maybe some of that has um been over the last sort of 10 years or so um could you give us a little bit of information about, about that um, and the the trends that we've seen in that context?
1: Yeah, so that came about from the um, O'Neill uh, review, which was in 2016, where they set out certain sort of uh, guidelines or or aims, really. Um, and yeah, horses are a little bit difficult because sometimes they're classed, as I go through in the um, article, sometimes they're classed as food producing animals and sometimes they're classed as horses. So um that's a little bit complicated but yeah it comes from it's an annual report that's um set out by the government and it's 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 called VARS which stands for the Veterinary Antimicrobial Resistance and Sales Surveillance um and yeah it's always published a year behind so um you know you Mm -hmm. might think the data is out of date but it's it's not but yeah it's showing definite decrease in trends so you know we are getting there for sure um so yeah the battle is not lost
0: yeah I think that's uh, I, th- I think quite an important message I guess because often it, it you know it, it feels like one of these things that maybe we're uh, having a bit of an uphill struggle like you say and um, uh, that it feels like a bit of a battle sometimes that maybe it's never going to be won but maybe uh, the fact that there is some evidence that steps people are taking makes are making a difference and, and hopefully that's quite encouraging for 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 people uh, in in many contexts
1: The only other thing I want to add is that it's not a perfect marker. There are some inconsistencies, but as a, you know, if you if you take it take it for what it is, um, an annual review, then uh, it's definitely showing decreased trends.
0: Perfect. Um, so I guess hopefully now we can move on to uh, discuss a little bit more specifically for equine practice and antimicrobial uh, stewardship in particular. Um, are there any? Uh, challenges that we face as equine vets and um, compared to other types of practice um or, or even maybe in human medicine and um, that we we have a little bit differently
1: well first of all i i would like to think that most doctors or um Uh, small animal vets don't fear for their life sometimes when they're administering an antimicrobial. Um, So I think the safety aspect of being in a horse vet is, you know, really important. Um, So many of antimicrobials we use in horses are, um, you know, intramuscular. And if you've got Mm -hmm. a needle shy horse that you can't get near, then obviously you've got to use what's out there that's available in IV form, for example so that's probably the the main reason and obviously due to the the horse the design of the horse's gut there's many antimicrobials that's used in horse uh, sorry in small animals that are just not safe for use in horses so Mm -hmm. yeah it leaves a very very very, um, narrow pool of antimicrobials available for use
0: yeah and obviously you um uh sort of mentioned earlier that maybe there's a few more options for Foles in particular, and maybe some of that is because they're more comparable in weight to um, uh, other species. Um, what do we know about our uh, use of uh, HPCIAS in in that group of animals?
1: Yeah, um, so obviously some some antimicrobials are not safe for use in foals, such as enrofloxacin. It's fine to use; it's okay to use in utero, but actually, once they're born. Um, but obviously because they are smaller, uh, cost is, uh, they weigh less generally. So cost is <laughs> a, uh, much more, um, uh, more antimicrobials are affordable. I forgot to mention that in the last question, actually, that, you know, many antimicrobials that are safe and available to use like amoxicillin in horses, IV, they're just too expensive to use in adult horse.
0: Mm-hmm. So obviously
1: many other antimicrobials and obviously because foals are very fragile, aren't they? When they, um, come into hospital they're you know neonates that a lot of the time there's not time to wait for culture and susceptibility but a lot of the time they get given um safety straight off so uh, for that reason they've you know they're a, a, a big user of hbcias in hospitals and probably ambulatory as well
0: yeah i think um uh Like you said, I think the the sort of weight and uh, cost is is really important and uh, um, uh, folds obviously fall into that niche category where we we do have maybe a little bit more choice. Um, There's a section in the article where you discuss a little bit more about um, some of the antimicrobial stewardship in equine practice um, and some studies maybe that have have documented um, uh, the use of particular agents. What do we know about... uh, What's going on in that context at the moment, or certainly in the in the recent history?
1: Um, just that unfortunately, there is still a lot of um, HbCias, particularly fluoroquinolones and fuel, that are used as first line treatment, and very few of them are actually based on culture and susceptibility.
0: Yes, I think that's um, uh, uh, comes across really nicely in, in the article. Um, is there any? Uh, information that we know of about um or from any studies where we can sort of have documented evidence of steps people have taken that have been effective in in terms of uh, improving antimicrobial stewardship in practice
1: yeah so um basically auditing it does work being annoying <laughs> um so by um for example in a hospital if you have morbidity and mortality rounds where clinicians have to sort of just and you can do this in in ambulatory practice as well where once a month you meet over a cup of coffee and uh, you just have to explain to your colleagues why you chose to use an hbcia mm-hmm. um a lot of the time there's no you know it might be based on cultural susceptibility or there might be no other safe alternative like i said um, safety of the vet and and people around the horse has to be take priority over antimicrobial resistance so the other thing is like heavy benchmarking um so we found that actually sort of uh, there's a study recently that where um if people were seen as a high prescriber and they got told it repeatedly and and sent various um uh you know ways to advise on how to reduce their use it did work so um unfortunately and the, the other thing as well sorry um other people use that if you want to use an, H- use an hbcia you have to find a colleague that agrees with you so um yeah those are the main ways to reduce your hospital use of or your in your practice use your um critically important antimicrobials
0: yeah those i think uh, hopefully are sort of uh easily implementable uh, steps i think uh, maybe quite a lot of practices maybe have uh practice meetings or 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 do have opportunities to discuss uh, uh you know like a, a m M&M rounds and i think uh, maybe just trying to include that as a topic of discussion like you said uh, maybe just makes that a bit a bit more dialogue around that um subject um uh, can can probably make quite a big difference in terms of people's uh, uh uh, perceptions when they're making decisions just to, to try and give that an extra prompt i guess uh,
1: sounds like a good idea like it's cheap and easy you know easy to implement isn't it
0: yeah absolutely um so one area that you uh, move on to uh, discuss a little bit further um is around polymix in b um, and certainly for, for me this was not uh, an area that's uh, uh, maybe in my mind had been uh, that closely related to antimicrobial resistance I guess maybe because of how we use it in practice um, could you give us a bit more information about why that in particular that drug is important in this context?
1: Uh, yes yeah, certainly so polymixin B is obviously used for its uh, treatment in uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome in horses and uh, polymixin B is actually very closely related to polymixin E which is another name for colistin. And in human medicine, colistin is a, a last resort, um, critically important antimicrobial that's used in multi-drug resistant enterobacteriaceae. ACI. So um, I am, you know, very concerned that the use of um, polymixin B, especially at this sort of sub-therapeutic level, and mm-hmm. because horses weigh 500 kilos or thereabouts uh, are likely to be a, a, you know, potential contributor to, um, the global burden of uh, colistin resistance
0: yeah i think the um uh, as you said the the disparity maybe between the the dose that we're using for for our aim in therapy is obviously mismatched really with what what we'd be expecting to have any sort of antimicrobial effect and um you know in other contexts it, it completely clicks that you you know you want to avoid that sort of sub-therapeutic um dose but um in that context, I guess it's, it's a little bit different in terms of what we're trying to achieve. So that, that kind of stood out to me a little bit. Um, the, uh, in terms of the evidence for whether that's impacting in equine hospitals, um, whether we're getting any uh, resistance to colistin, is that is that been documented at all?
1: Yeah, so there's um, quite a few studies that has found uh, uh, the the genes in question are called MCR. But yeah, there's one called MCR9 that's been found both um, in a hospital in Sweden and also um, in the results from my PhD. I think we found it in multiple hospitals um, within, you know, within the studies. So, um, yeah, there definitely is evidence. Now, we've not been able to relate if this is horses, this is in horses that have received polymixin B or not, but... Um, there is certainly uh, these genes in horses in hospitals currently.
0: Yeah, great. So maybe something for us to, to I guess, just to add into that debate really about the use of, of polymixin B in um, uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome and and whether you know whether that's uh, uh, a good idea to, to continue the use of that. I guess it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, addition to that discussion, I think, which uh, uh, maybe we'd not really been that aware of um so that's really interesting
1: yeah thank you christian yeah i don't want to say don't use it to people but just use it prudently you know just think about the case you're using it in and that potentially might lead to more resistance sort of from a global health one health perspective
0: great um so next you move on to talk about some specific um bacteria of concern um, so we'll just go through those I guess in, in a similar order to the article um, so the the first one you discuss is the extended spectrum uh, beta-lactamase producing enterobacteriaceae um, can you give us some background about why those are particularly problematic I guess more so in humans and, and what we know about them in horses as well
1: Yes. Um, thankfully in human, uh, sorry, thankfully in horses, they're not a huge cause of mortality. They're mainly cause surgical site infections, which I said are mainly morbidity. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in humans, they are often involved in uh, bloodstream infections. or um, And yeah, the problem with is if you don't, um, they lead to sepsis and, you know, ultimately mor- mortality of the patient potentially. So there's a scary statistic that, you know, if, if um, every hour, That the treatment is correct, treatment is delayed, it increases mortality by seven percent or something. So, um, pretty scary statistics.
0: Yeah, great. So maybe from that context, um, uh, hopefully not not something we're having to encounter in uh, in quite the same context um, as as, uh, uh, in human medicine. Um, Maybe one that's a little bit more uh, 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 common for us to encounter is um, uh, MRSA. how important is MRSA in human medicine at the moment?
1: Um, it is still important, but I think the focus has definitely shifted towards ESBLs and uh, the gram negatives. Um, but yeah, in humans, it's still a source of implant infection and mm-hmm. obviously hospital biosecurity. If you gone into hospital, a lot of the time people will swab you for um, MRSA up your nose. And they've actually started doing that for ESBL carriage now.
0: Okay yes yeah, so that's that's maybe been a bit of a shift of focus for them like you say that uh, um MRSA is maybe less implicated in in bloodstream infections.
1: Yes correct.
0: Um what do we know about MRSA in equine practice obviously that's it's been a, an area of focus uh, for a little bit longer maybe and um, but where are we at in that context?
1: Um so, yeah, MRSA is a bit of a um, biosecurity nightmare in hospitals. A lot of the time we find it's, uh, it's this sort of livestock associated. So there's, um, you know, a lot of the time it seems to have come from some farm animal related practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, using the same recovery box, etc. cetera. Um, but, yeah, it's thankfully it's not a, a sort of high mortality, but obviously it's very contagious. So, um, you know, these horses should be placed in isolation, really
0: yeah and uh obviously there's people might be familiar with some of the studies looking at the interaction or sort of zoonotic spread between horses and handlers um uh what do we know about that in terms of um in the in the sort of horse owner or uh, practitioner population?
1: yeah that's a very good point um so yeah several studies have found very similar um uh, bacterial characteristics um both in the horse and, and the human. So as it is often this livestock associated, we think it's come from the horse and infected the human rather than the other way around. Um, and I know of insurance cases where you've had an MRSA-infected horse where they've actually ended up paying out mortality for the horse because they've been worried that, you know, if the human is uh, undergoing chemotherapy or isn't being mm-hmm. compromised for any other reason. then um, I think the insurance companies would rather pay out for the um, value of the horse rather than uh, a huge uh, human medical lawsuit on their hands
0: yeah i think that's that's really interesting and i guess uh um sort of lead leads on a little bit from what from what you said really that uh um you know if you have an mrsa positive horse then obviously the the initial step is to isolate it but then sometimes that sort of longer term plan is not not necessarily that easy to um to develop really and as you said there's you've got to consider lots of other things that maybe we're not that used to having to, to bear in mind, like exposure of immunocompromised people to, to that animal.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, salmonellosis um, is also quite important for us uh, in equine practice, although there's maybe a bit of geographic difference in that. Um, can you, uh, give a bit of explanation about where is maybe, more, uh, it's more of a problem.
1: Um, yeah so particularly um in america north america, I think in the u k we're fairly uh, thankfully we don't see it very much um, I presume mostly it's due to to climate and 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 things like that mm-hmm. um, but yeah so thankfully in the uk we're we're not very familiar with it in that aspect
0: um which uh, which species are particularly relevant for us in equine practice to be aware of?
1: Uh, there's various, but actually the one we end up seeing most of is some is, um, our typhimurium. Um, and there's actually been a, a recent outbreak I've been involved in with, uh, it's called DT116, which is, uh, has been found in horses and uh, livestock as well um, in the northwest of the UK. So it can definitely spread between horses and farm animals.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. What do, we, what do we know in a sort of clinical context um, when we're dealing with uh, salmonella cases? What do we need to know about that in terms of managing that in a, in a hospital situation or a clinic situation?
1: Oh, just that it's very contagious and often very fatal. So, um, obviously, we have our three criteria for isolating horses um, mm-hmm. with pyrexia, leukemia, and uh, diarrhea. So, just being really aware that horses can shed it uh, sort of subclinically and, and lead to a, a, a big outbreak.
0: That's great. And the, um, I think the next. A point that um, would be useful to discuss, I guess, is um, a table that you've uh, included in the paper. um, And that's um, a table that sort of discusses a little bit and gives an overview of some of the intrinsic resistance of of particular bacteria. Um, Can you just explain to us what, when we talk about intrinsic resistance, what what that actually refers to?
1: So intrinsic resistance is uh, where all of the um, members of that bacteria uh, species are not are expected to be uh, not effective. Sorry, I should, should probably explain this a bit better, but where we're not <laughs> expecting them to to have an activity against a certain area.
0: Okay. Um, so is there any uh, particular highlights that we, I guess the table is quite a nice way of demonstrating that, but just to sort of discuss it, is there any particular highlights of uh, uh, species we need to be aware of where there's uh, particular situations where they uh, or particular classes where there is high intrinsic resistance?
1: Yeah certainly um so for example um pseudomonas has a lot of intrinsic resistance um they have these porins in their walls so it means that a lot of they can pump out a lot of antimicrobials so mm-hmm. that's a sort of inherent resistance so it's not to do with the amount of uh antimicrobials used etc um and the other ones are uh, Enterococcus as well um and a, f- a few others that i mentioned in the article but yeah they have we already have such limited um spectrum of uh, bacteria um, sorry spectrum of antimicrobials to use in those mm. cases that if you then develop any resistance you then have next to none and especially as yes. the table highlights there's such few antimicrobials available already that sometimes you're left with one if that
0: mm yeah so i think that's that's a really useful um uh table to for everyone to just have a a look at if they're interested in um uh, getting a bit more information about that i think that that depicts that quite nicely Um another topic you discuss uh, in a bit more detail is the duration of administration of antimicrobials Um and obviously a concept a lot of us would be familiar with maybe in many ways from sort of human medicine is the idea of finishing a course um, of antimicrobials. Um, Is that still relevant to us now or is that sort of an outdated uh, approach to to, uh, antimicrobial therapy?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Christian. It's a bit outdated nowadays. Um, obviously, it's different if you've got an infection that's ongoing. Um, then you shouldn't stop antimicrobials until it's improved, uh, as such. But yeah, with particularly with regards to colic surgery, and you know, people say, I, you know, I always give five days. Or if you have cellulitis treatment, I always give them at least ten days. Or sinusitis is the worst one. People will give them fourteen days of sinusitis uh, of mm-hmm. antimicrobials to treat sinusitis and and then some more when the discharge returns instead of uh instead of thinking that there might be an infected tooth associated
0: yeah okay so that's i think uh, uh it is it's very easy to to be in a routine of administering things for a particular amount of time like you say that you have sort of your own protocols in in mind but um uh, obviously sort of interesting that that that's uh you know maybe not the right way to go about it and i think previously sometimes that was that was thought to be uh Um, uh, often argued that that might be uh, beneficial in terms of uh, making sure that you had a sort of an effective antimicrobial treatment but maybe that's you know as you say that's not really the um, with the evidence we have now that's maybe not the right way to go about it.
1: Yeah absolutely and um, it's hard because you know sometimes you know we'll treat sarcoids or something at at, uh, at University of Liverpool and you know we, we give them perioperative antimicrobials and then you know very little afterwards and a lot of the time referring vets ring you up and say oh i placed on antimicrobials because there was discharge so it's it's really hard to kind of try and, and be brave and stop them but um it's obviously you know everyone wants the horse to get better mm-hmm. um and you know clients need a bit of discharge and they'll ring their vet up etc so it's a real fine balance between giving enough but not overdoing it
0: yeah and i guess that's that's uh um something uh, that's maybe worth highlighting in terms of critical times so a horse for example that's having um that's been admitted for a surgical procedure um, in terms of the, the timings of when that horse needs antimicrobials um can you just give us a bit more context on on what the sort of key times are for when antimicrobials maybe are going to make the most difference
1: So, yeah, certainly you want high um, systemic levels while surgery is being done. So we normally say, depending on the antimicrobial use, but at least sort of 30 to 60, well, at least 60 minutes before start of surgery. So first incision. Um, and then obviously, if you have a prolonged surgery, not so much in horses, because obviously we don't do very surgery for hours and hours. Um, but if you're using antimicrobial with a short half life, such as benzoyl penicillin, for example, um, you know, that it's, it's half life is very short. That you should repeat it intraoperatively if it goes beyond one to two times the uh, half life or if there's a significant amount of blood loss of 30 uh, percent or more.
0: Great. Yeah, I think that that's just um, uh, a useful uh, point to to take on there. Um, and, and maybe another thing to discuss in terms of duration of antimicrobials is, is what markers we can use to guide us on that. Um, and obviously the ones that we're very familiar with in equine practice are, are probably serum amyloid A and uh, fibrinogen. Um, what's the downside of using those in relation to monitoring an, an infectious process?
1: Um, so yeah, they are markers of inflammation rather than infection. So obviously, in the majority of cases of horses that have an infection, unless they've got some other uh, inflammatory condition going on, you can probably assume that the SAA is, you know, levels are due to infection. But like I said, they are specific for inflammation rather than infection. So um, there is uh, another biomarker called procalcitonin which is used in humans uh, which is very specific for infection and even specific for bacterial infection rather than um, uh, in, uh, rather than viral for example and it's got mm-hmm. a lovely short half-life so in humans sometimes they even repeat you know if, if they're unsure they will repeat the measurement even after six hours
0: okay that sounds sounds really interesting so i guess uh um hopefully that's something that in in the future might become more available to um to equine practitioners as well as as a as a method of monitoring and that that might even be uh, fairly transformational maybe if that, if that does become the case
1: yeah hopefully so uh, i suppose we just have to watch watch this space there's lots of people looking at uh, procalcitonin a lot of the time in relation to sirs and horses um, but to actually use it as a guide to stop antimicrobial uh, treatment it's hopefully going to become you know it is a, a developing field in in horses.
0: Great um, another topic you touch on a little bit is the sort of collaboration between um, equine practitioners and microbiologists um, and sort of getting the most out of that relationship and um, what as you from your sort of um uh, understanding of things what are some of the challenges that are, are faced by both parties in terms of uh, uh, i guess often the the ultimate aim is to is if we have a an isolate maybe trying to uh, gauge the relevance of that particular isolate to an individual patient what what are the challenges to to establishing that
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, because obviously a lot of the time, you know, we're dealing with different parts. Um, So the microbiologist is is most of the time in the lab and they don't see the patient and vice versa. So, um, you know, a lot of the time forms, if forms are incorrectly filled in, such as sample site and uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit of history that will really hide, uh, really guide um the microbiologist to be able to make a more um a judgment call on the relevance of that anti- of, of that bacteria in that type of infection um and then obviously sampling as well so if you are um people are always obsessed with sampling pus um <laughs> and the problem yes. is with in a um many cultures are polymicrobial so you will often find four different bacteria potentially and then it's up to the lab that to decide which ones are the most relevant ones um and obviously it's an educated guess but if you can reduce the ones that you know if if it's really truly a cause of an infection it will still be there even if you wipe away the pus and so there's certain techniques such as obviously cleaning the site thoroughly before sampling um and then you can either um, use this Levine's technique, where you actually depress the swab and try and get some uh, juices out of the wound, um, mm-hmm. or um, you can actually submit a tissue culture as well. Um, and if you're having any problems with the culture, just ring up the, the laboratory as well. A lot of the time, they'll tell you a lot more over the phone than they were able to put down on a, on a report.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, uh, I think really uh, useful. Uh, thing to highlight really because I think often you you uh, you do sort of correlate that having uh, uh, some uh, sort of a reasonable amount of material uh, or exposure of the uh, uh, you know as you say sort of pus and things like that you inherently feel like that's going to be a, a more uh, uh, a useful uh, culture but I guess just uh, um, that on as a basis of how you're deciding how to sample things is maybe not is maybe not the right way to go about it
1: yeah. And going back to the uh, intrinsic resistance, you know, if you have four bacteria, um, ultimately it takes the lab a lot longer to give you the results as well because they have to, you know, process them. Um, so the results take longer and also finding an antimicrobial that's susceptible to all four uh, bacteria is impossible mm-hmm. um, yeah so a lot of the time I think people end up using HBCIs because it's the only one that's susceptible to two or three out of the four so um it just you know it then leads to um you know poor antimicrobial choice perhaps
0: yeah i think um um uh, that's a really uh, uh uh useful sort of um takeaway message from from that point of view um, I think uh, that's that's given us a good sort of overview of, of most uh, aspects of the article there. Is there any, any other uh, uh, take-homes that you think are, are sort of important to emphasise um, from where we are in, in terms of uh, antimicrobial resistance at the moment in equine practice? Um,
1: just think that, yeah, I think people just need to be brave uh, there really are no new antimicrobials becoming available for horses anytime soon, and I know everyone thinks, Oh, I must save this patient and, and this and that. And obviously, if it's absolutely life threatening, but sometimes just being brave and seeing if the infection will get better or, or using a shorter duration because otherwise, we will we'll get to a stage where we have no available effective antimicrobials. So, mm-hmm. I think by acting now, we can as a, title of the article suggests, we can actually prolong the effectiveness of antimicrobials in horses for the future.
0: Perfect. Well, I think uh, that's given uh, a useful update for many different uh, aspects of that as a topic. So thank you very much for your time on that today, Kaiser. Um, And uh, hopefully, uh, as we said, people will uh, um, make use of the the article itself um, if there's any extra bits that they would find useful to look at in a bit more detail
1: fantastic yeah thank you very much christian i hope people enjoy
0: reading the article great and thank you all very much for listening thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast more on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash